Wow, that was awesome worship. I, I just want to say thank you to our praise and worship team. They are a fabulous, fabulous addition to our worship every week. We have um, three great gals that are willing to lead the praise time every week, and it's sometimes a daunting thing to do, and they do it gratefully. I just want to encourage all of you as we get closer to the end of the year, it seems that we get um, more involved in being able to see our friends and have those great relationships and it's harder and harder to get in here for praise and worship but just do what you can and come in and enjoy it we this is such a privilege i feel like in my life to be to have the opportunity to have a praise and a worship time every week and so i want you all to rush in here and enjoy it uh, deb haygood said a few weeks ago she said well thank goodness i wasn't the teacher that week because i cried through all the worship songs i wouldn't have been able to get up there and uh, give the lecture and that's kind of how i felt this morning as i just loved hearing you all sing so much i'm shelly davis i'm part of the women in the world worship team and i uh, not I, I do worship. I'm part of the teaching team. I, they believe me. You don't want me to sing when I'm up here. So I'm part of the teaching team. Thanks for being here. It's just a great time of year to be together, to be studying the scriptures together. How many of you went to the movie this last weekend? Did anybody go to the movie? If you did, if you did, you may have seen the latest Hollywood blockbuster that has just created a stir all over the world. It's called The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. It's been a best-selling book series for the last few years. You may have read it. For those of you that either have read one of the books or seen the movie, I think you would agree with me that it is both a compelling and a disturbing story. It's um, uh, it's one of those things that you're fascinated with, but um, it, it creates a little bit of unease in your spirit. Now, I'm mentioning it this morning not because I'm condemning it or condoning it. I'm not going to give you a uh, you should or you shouldn't or whatever, but I'm mentioning it because it is a great example of worldview, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning uh, because its storyline, the storyline of the Hunger Games, is basically told and written through uh, what's called a humanistic worldview. Now, a worldview is the lens through which we all see the world. And our worldview, whatever it is, comes from that foundational, um, fundamental orientation of our hearts. And whatever our worldview is, whether we realize it or not, it colors our lives and it provides the foundational set of precepts out of which we live our lives. A worldview um, is something that we all have, even though we may not walk around saying, well, this is my worldview. We all have a worldview, whether we call it that or not. We may call it a biblical perspective. We may call it a liberal mindset or a conservative mindset. But every person lives out a worldview. It impacts their actions, their attitudes, their decision-making. It also impacts their relationships. Whatever your worldview is, it impacts your relationships. And certainly, it impacts your religion. For the Hunger Games, the humanistic worldview that guides that story, if you've seen that story, it means that you don't see any element of God in the story at all. There's no element of the supernatural 
um, or of a higher power as the story unfolds. Uh, the humans in the story hold all the cards. In fact, they even have the right to define good and evil in the story because in a humanistic worldview, there's no one else that defines good and evil. As humans, they have that power. You know, worldviews such as humanism or whatever other worldview you hold can be influential in the culture. You see that. A worldview that becomes prominent and prevalent begins to influence the culture. It influences how people spend their money, what political decisions they make, how they live their life. And today's media has the ability to um, impose worldview on millions and millions of people. Sometimes they don't even realize it, that it's a worldview that they're uh, being um, taught or, or discipled in in some way. You know, as women who love Jesus, and I think um, everybody in the room is here this morning because they would say that, it's going to be important not only in our personal lives, but also in the kingdom, that I think as women of God, we put some thought into our worldview. We need to ask ourselves, what is the lens that I look at life through? What is that? Where did it come from? What guides my view of the world and how I react to it? You know, as believers, our worldview should line up with what we profess as Christians and desire to live out as followers of Jesus. Because if our worldview is different from the worldview that we hold in this Bible right here, then we're really no different from the hypocrites that we see challenge Jesus this week in chapter 12. You know, the remarkable thing about Mark chapter 12, as we looked about it this week, is not only are we seeing the worldview of the hypocrites that challenge Jesus in the temple courts that we're going to talk about this morning, we have the stunning opportunity to see the Savior's worldview as he talks for the very last time among the crowds of the people. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, looking at his worldview gives us the perfect blueprint for our worldview as we go out into the world as believers. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to take a look at Jesus' worldview. We're also going to have a good look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders' worldview. So read with me beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower. Then he, vented, he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent... Still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he lived. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
You know, last week when Lynn was here, we saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem as a king, and he arrived at the temple courts. And as we start this morning in chapter 10, chapter 12, Jesus is still in the temple courts. It's probably late Tuesday or early Wednesday on the week of the crucifixion. And Jesus only has a short time left to be with his disciples and to be with the crowds of people. And I think he has some things left that he wants to say. And he tells a parable here that he actually addresses to all the people that are listening as the crowds are around him. But he particularly wants this message the ears of the religious leaders. He wants them to hear his message loud and clear. And this parable develops the prophecy of God's judgment on Israel that was presented in Isaiah. If you remember back when we um, studied Isaiah together, in fact, if you did your homework and looked at Isaiah chapter 5, you know that the vineyard that the parable is about actually represents the nation of Israel. And God is the landowner that spared no effort in making Israel great. Look on your verse sheet to Isaiah 5, verses 1, 2, and 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Now the harvest time that's represented here in this parable stands for the time when God really expected to reap the benefits, the fruit of this vineyard. When he would come and he would be um, obeyed and he would be honored. When the Son of God would come and the Messiah would be revered. Um, The servants that the landowner sends in his place represent God's prophets or the leaders of Israel that the leaders of Israel over the years had rejected and persecuted. You know, Jesus tells this in the earshot of the religious leaders because he wants them to hear this message. How poorly the prophets of Israel have been treated over the years by the religious leaders and to know that that's exactly what they're doing now. They're doing the same thing to him as they plot and plan to kill him that the previous religious leaders had done to all the prophets. The supreme test of the tenant farmers and, of course, the nation of Israel as Jesus stands in their midst in the temple courts comes when the owner's son comes and he's come to collect the rent. And, of course, we know in the parable that thinking that the owner must be dead if they've sent his son, they're hoping and assuming that if they kill the owner's son, then they are going to own the vineyard. The inheritance will be theirs now. In verse 9 here, Jesus gives the leaders of Israel a strong warning. And how gracious of it, of him is it that he does this just a few hours, a few days before his death. He's still willing to warn the religious leader that they are on the wrong track. He is the son of God, of course, who's been sent to Israel 
And Jesus warns the religious leaders that as they plot his death, that there are going to be serious consequences for them. As a rejected owner, God is going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel that he's warned them about over and over and over again through hundreds of years of prophets. And he's going to transfer all the privileges that the nation of Israel has as um, his blessing and his nation He's going to give it to other people. And you know, ladies, as we sit here this morning holding our Bible, we are living out that scripture because we have temporarily been given the rights and the privileges of the chosen people, the nation of Israel, because of their rejection of the son that's taking place right here in this parable and in the temple courts. Read Romans 5.25 on your verse sheet with me. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. And Hosea 2.23, this is the prophet speaking, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. We are able to sit here this morning and say that our Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. Because we have been given the privileges of the nation of Israel. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus brings the application of the parable actually back to himself by quoting Psalm 118 when he says, The stone the builders have rejected have become the cornerstone or the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, and right here is where we see the difference that is having a worldview based on the truth of who God is makes in our life. You know, just like the tenants in the parable, the religious leaders that surround Jesus believe that if they can rid themselves of Jesus, they can have the vineyard back. They can have all the power back. Jesus has come teaching and doing miracles, doing things that have threatened them and their power as religious leaders. They believe the lie that if they get rid of Jesus, things will go back to allowing them to have all the power over Israel. What they've forgotten is that Israel doesn't belong to them even though they feel powerful as religious leaders, what they've forgotten is that Israel has always been God's. And Israel is always going to be God's. They've lost sight of the fact, the religious leaders have, that God is an all-powerful God. More powerful even than they are. In place of an all-powerful God, the Pharisees who have based their power on legalism, have put their own extra rules and regulations and traditions in place of an all-powerful God. Their legalism has replaced God in their worldview. The liberal Sadducees have used license. License is where we take the opportunity to make our own choices rather than choices God would make for us. The Sadducees have given themselves license to pick and choose which scriptures that they believe are important. Both of these groups in liberal in legalism and license have decided to kill Jesus because he is a personal threat to their power. I read a great quote that said that the gospel of Jesus Christ was crucified between the two thieves of legalism and license. And that's really what we see here, that the two thieves of legalism and license 
are crucifying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus ends the parable in, um, Psalm one, with Psalm 118, and he makes it clear that because God is an all-powerful God, that the stone that Israel has rejected is now going to be the cornerstone of God's new building, the church. The cornerstone of God's new building, the church. Read Psalm, 1, Psalm 33, 11 with me on the verse sheet. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. You know, even though the religious leaders don't heed the warning that Jesus in his graciousness is giving them, he's giving them a last chance to figure it out. They don't heed the warning, but we can heed his warning this morning. And just like Jesus, we can anchor our worldview on the truth that God is all-powerful. We oftentimes get caught up um, in our own lives and giving power to other people around us or taking power over our lives for ourselves. It's just not true. Only God is all-powerful. And that's the worldview that we should have just like Jesus. You know, there's a great book that I love and I often recommend it. You may have read it. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. It's written by a guy by the name of Ed Welch. And unfortunately, I have the opportunity to recommend it to women a lot because all of us seem to struggle at one time or another with thinking that the people around us, whether it's our families or our bosses, our peers, have more power in our lives than God does. Many of our insecurities as women come from our what's called the fear of man. Uh, we worry about what people think of us, how they're judging us. Are we measuring up to people? If our worldview is the same as Jesus' worldview, where only God is all-powerful in our lives and in our world, then we should all be writing a book titled, God is Bigger Than Anything Else in Our Lives. And wouldn't that be great if we would all write that book and live by it, that God is bigger than anything else in our lives, any person, any circumstances, any plan or future plan that we have. Jesus' worldview rests on the fact that God is an all-powerful God. But let's keep reading. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. Later they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy, their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and asked him, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. The Sanhedrin was the ancient supreme court of Israel. Um, They oversaw the temple. They supervised the various rituals and traditions and sacrifices that went on in the temple. And they made sure that everything in the temple was done according to the law. And it's the Sanhedrin that sends the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus here now to question him. And the word that's translated in our NIV Bibles here as catch is a Greek word that actually means to describe catching a wild animal in a trap, a a deadly trap. And so this is a serious opportunity here that they're taking, thinking 
aha, we have the perfect setup here to trap Jesus and do him deadly harm. When Judea became a Roman province in 6 AD, the Roman government enacted what's called a poll tax or a head tax on each citizen. Every individual had to pay a tax to the Roman emperor. And you know, many taxes are unpopular, but this one was particularly unpopular among the Jewish nation because it signified the authority that Rome had over their lives. Now, the Herodians were a Jewish political faction that actually favored foreign rule over the nation of Israel. And because of that, they were totally okay with paying the tax to Caesar. The Pharisees are, of course, the um, legalistic uh, members of the Jewish uh, ruling class, the teachers of the law. They did not favor paying the tax, but because they were legalistic, they always paid it. And what they're thinking here is that they're going to put Jesus on the spot. Because if he says, don't pay the tax, that's going to put him in trouble with Rome, and Rome will come and arrest him. If he says, do pay the tax, then that's going to put him um, in deep trouble with the Passover crowd that surrounds him, and they're going to swarm him and take him. And so they want him to give a yes or a no answer, and of course he doesn't. He gives a both-and answer. Um, A denarius was a small Roman coin, silver coin, and it was the only one that was acceptable for paying the tax to Rome. And so Jesus asked them for that Roman coin, and on one side of it is a picture of the emperor. On the other side is is an inscription that the emperor has put on there, which basically identifies him as a semi, semi-divine uh, being worthy of worship. Uh, which is why the uh, Jewish people had such difficulty with this coin. So Jesus' answer, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, acknowledges, it's such a brilliant answer, it acknowledges that the tax was a debt that was owed to Caesar because they use his money and they have the benefit of his government. It's the Roman troops that are protecting him. It's their government, which is uh, providing legislative support for life. But he rejects the idolatrous claim that's on the other side of the coin when he says, give to God what is God. You know, even though Caesar does have authority over uh, those who use his silver coin and benefit from his government, he's not the ultimate authority in people's lives, Jesus is saying here. Jesus' worldview affirms That God and only God is man's creator. And because of that, because he's our creator God and we're created in his image, it's God that actually has authority over every person who bears his image. And their allegiance is due him because of that. One theologian I read said, people are God's coinage and they owe him what belongs to him which is their allegiance. You know, and these were important words probably for Mark's Roman readers. The um, Gospel of Mark was uh, written with some thought that the people, the new believers in Rome would be reading it uh, because they live under Roman rule. And so it would be important for Mark's Roman rulers to understand that their allegiance to Christ as their Savior did not really necessitate that they be involved in civil disobedience. They didn't have to revolt against the Roman government because they gave their hearts to their Lord Jesus Christ. 
If our world view, if our world view today is the same as our Lord Jesus Christ, then we understand that we do have the responsibility in life to be good citizens. But above that, we have the calling, the calling to be devoted disciples, understanding that our ultimate allegiance is to God and to God alone. Let's read verses 18 through 27 together. Then the, Sad- the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first one married and died without children. Um, the second one married the widow. He also died. Uh, the Sadducees go on through this story down until she's uh, been left widowed by seven different men. The question they ask in verse 23 is, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. But of the living, you are badly mistaken. So the next thing we see here is it's the Sadducees this time that come to trap Jesus. Now, the Sadducees are the Jewish um, aristocratic party. They're the upper class. They're composed largely of the priesthood. They're wealthy, they're urban, they're educated. Now, they were less numerous than the legalistic Pharisees, but they held influential positions, more influential positions on the Sanhedrin than probably the Pharisees did. And they also generally cooperated with the Roman authorities. So um, the religious leaders see the Sadducees as being influential in maybe getting the Romans to arrest Jesus. So the Sadducees come. They want to stir up the crowd against Jesus too. So they ask him um, uh, this question about uh, marriage. Now the Sadducees only accepted, this is interesting, in their license, uh, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. Uh, the first five books um, written only by Moses. And they have totally disregarded the books of history, um, the the Psalms, the uh, prophets. Only the first five books, as far as they were concerned, were authoritative. And because of that, they believe that they are right in denying the truth of the resurrection, of future judgments, uh, and of any existence of the spiritual realm, including um, angels, because they claim there was no evidence of them in Moses' writings in the first five books. But here they come to Jesus with a question concerning the Mosaic regulation that's found in Deuteronomy 25. I think it's verses 5 through 10 if you want to go back and look at it. Um, And it's a uh, Mosaic regulation concerning, it's really about rights of inheritance, but it's concerning if a man dies and he doesn't have an heir, then the widow has to marry the unmarried brother or the closest unmarried relative in order that she can have a son and the rights of inheritance would go on uninterrupted, which was important to Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. So 
in asking their question the way they do, the Sadducees are obviously ridiculing resurrection because they don't even believe it's happening. But what they're trying to do uh, is, is to get Jesus in trouble with the rest of the crowds that are in the temple courts because they are there for the Passover. So Jesus... Um, answers their question with a question, which if you look back and you see, you look at Jesus's interactions a lot, he does that uh, frequently. He answers their question with a question and he quickly points out, you are in error. That's what he begins with. And he gives them two reasons that they are wrong. They're wrong because they don't know the scriptures, meaning they don't understand the scriptures. They know their content, but they don't understand the meaning of the scriptures. The second reason that Jesus says they are in error is because they don't know the power of God. Now, the Sadducees have not understood what God has revealed in the scriptures about the resurrection, and they have not understood that God is an all-powerful God. So that's how they've started into this issue about the resurrection. And because of that, if they don't understand what God says about the resurrection, they don't understand the power of God, they're not going to understand that in a resurrected life, things are going to look different. Things are going to look different. And the scriptures tell us that, and Jesus tells us that here. The Sadducees are trying to apply the principles of an earthly life to a future life, and it won't work. So Jesus enlightens them about what a resurrected life will look like. This is an interesting passage of scriptures. He tells them um, that because uh, we're going to be living life in resurrected, glorified bodies, there's not going to be any death. Because there's not going to be any death, there's going to be no need for us to replenish ourselves by having children. Because there's going to be no need to have children, then there's going to be no responsibility to marriage. So marriage as we know it in this life will have no point or purpose in the resurrected life when we have immortal bodies. We're going to exchange our present bodies in the resurrected life we're glorified bodies. And we're also going to exchange our present lives and the things that go along with that for life in the presence of glory. And life in the presence of glory is going to change all of our perspectives and all of our needs and all of our relationships. And it sounds like a win to me. Sounds like a win to me. But because the Sadducees only have the first five books as the Old of the Old Testament as their authority, they have concluded that Moses didn't teach about the resurrection. And uh, I hope when you had your small group time, you talked about the fact that Jesus uh, picks up on their error. And where does he take them? He takes them back to Exodus. He takes them back to Exodus, uh, one of the five books of Moses. And he disagrees with them that Moses didn't teach about the resurrection because he quotes Exodus 3, 6 when he says... Um, that God said from the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And by making that present tense statement, God himself is affirming the fact that the patriarchs that he speaks of, that he is claiming to be their God, are still in existence. He continues to know them and he continues to have a relationship with them. He would not still be the God of these patriarchs if they had died and ceased to exist. His covenant relationship would no longer be with them if they no longer existed. So Jesus sums up the reality of the resurrected life here by saying in verse 27, 
God is the God of the living. The Sadducees have made a critical error with the scriptures here. They have familiarity with its content, but they don't understand its meaning. And since they've disavowed most of the Old Testament scriptures, they have severely handicapped their own ability to understand the God that they claim to worship. Because it's through the scriptures that we really develop our relationship with God because he reveals himself and his future for us in the scriptures. And we can make the same mistake in our lives today, can't we, ladies? We can be familiar with the content of some scripture and leave it at that. But, you know, as women of God, and I know um, I'm preaching to the choir today because you are all here engaged in the scriptures with me this morning. As women of God, if we don't pursue an understanding of the whole of scriptures and what it has to say about our great God and his plans for us, beginning in Genesis to Revelation, we're going to make some serious errors in our life, too. We're going to misapply scriptures. We're going to uh, live our life out of premises that we think we've learned in the scriptures that are not really true. You know, and that's the reason that we have women in the world. It's why we encourage each of you and uh, to be here and be students of the scriptures every single week to do your homework so that these pages are going to teach you who your God is so that you don't make the kind of errors and I don't make the kind of errors as the Sadducees are making right here. You know, it's also the reason why you're precious small group leader every week keeps you focused in that time you have together on studying the scriptures. Because as women, we all love relationships and we all love uh, to just be together. But um, as important as relationships are, it's knowing God through our study of the scriptures that is really going to change your life. That's what's going to be life-changing. Relationships are important, but it's knowing and understanding the Word of God that's going to change your life. Now, this is not the only place in this passage that Jesus emphasizes the importance of the Scriptures in knowing God. So jump over with me to verse 35. We're going to look down at verse 35 real quickly. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, calls, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus uses the scriptures here. He uses um, Psalm 110 to point out the truth that the religious, religious leaders were missing about the Messiah. You know, the religious leaders just remain committed to the view that um, the Messiah is going to be an earthly king, a human son of David in the continuation of David's dynasty. And certainly the scriptures support that truth. But by quoting Psalm 110 here, Jesus points out that King David called the Messiah Lord, implying that the Messiah is not only David's son, but he's also David's Lord at the same time. And that points to the truth that the religious leaders continue to miss over and over again. The truth that the Messiah is going to be fully God the Son of God, and he's going to be fully human. 
the son of David also. Read Luke one thirty-two on your verse sheet with me. It says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The Messiah is going to be fully God and fully human. And Jesus uses the scriptures to try to point out that truth one more time to the religious leaders who keep missing it. He uses the scriptures as a definitive defense against the religious leaders who are going to try to use this claim that Jesus has been making that he himself is God as blasphemy in the days to come. The other thing that he does is he uses the scriptures here um, to teach the crowd. Verse 37 um, says, The large crowd listened to him with delight. A worldview that emphasizes understanding the scriptures as a means of knowing God is a powerful defense for anyone. It's also an amazing way to impact the world and impact the people around you. And that's what Jesus does. He understands the power of the scriptures in the world. And it's his worldview that understanding the scriptures is important. So let's continue reading. Let's read. Let's go back to verse 28 now. Now, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said the teacher, well said teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So we finally have a Pharisee that comes to Jesus uh, and asks a question with what seems to be no uh, dreadful ulterior motive here. He simply is um, asking what has been a commonly debated question among the rabbinical circles. There were 613 Mosaic laws, 365 of them were positive, and 248 of them were negative. And so it was a common debate among the teachers of the law as which ones were more important, um, how not to exclude others, and how to group them together under a a principle which would elevate them um, as as important. Um, So this question was not unusual to Jesus, and he begins it here by quoting what's known as the Shema. It's actually from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the Shema was uh, something that the uh, devout Jews repeated twice every day. They repeated it morning and night, and it was an affirmation of their faith in God. But it's also an affirmation of monotheism, which was important to the nation of Israel because all of their existence, they had been surrounded by nations that were polytheistic, that um, worshipped more than one God, that had dozens of God, a God for every single thing. So... um, 
this affirmation of monotheism that we see here in the Shema is important. In fact, it would have also been important for Mark's Roman readers as they read um, his gospel because as citizens of Rome, their, their culture has been totally surrounded by polytheism. So Jesus' worldview of monotheism was important not only to Israel, but important to Mark's readers, and it's even more important as a worldview. It goes deeper, because Jesus here not only professes that there is one, one true God as he begins with the Shema, his worldview centers on loving the one true God completely and totally because he alone is God. Jesus understands that God has made a covenant with his people to love them and to love them alone. And God expects that same undivided devotion from his people. First John 14, it's not on your verse sheet, but it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Our God has loved us to the point of sending his own son as an atoning sacrifice. And love, and any passionate love relationship, um, is generally reciprocated. And that's what Jesus is, point, is trying to point out here. God, who loves us, expects that same devotion from us. Now, the Pharisee is asked for one command, but Jesus actually gives them two. He says, love God fully and completely. Love him with everything in you. Love him with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. But also love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Jesus' worldview not only includes our devotion to the one true God should be complete, but his worldview enlightens all of us to the truth that our devotion to God should spill over to everyone around us. And I don't know about you, but I've never known anyone that was fully and completely wholeheartedly devoted to God that didn't love everyone around them. It was like they couldn't help themselves. It just was an outpouring of the excitement and the contentment and the joy they felt in their own relationship to God. It's like you can't stop them. And in fact, I've always thought in my life and um, others that it's a red flag when I'm not loving people around me. It's a red flag in my life that maybe my heart is not focused on completely and wholly on the one true God. I had dinner last week with a gal who came here from China to go to school several years ago. She actually told me she was from a small village in northwestern um, China and that when she came here, she actually knew nothing about God at all. She'd never really had any conversations or any interaction with anyone that was a Christian or knew God and that when she came here as a stranger in a strange land and as a a young woman that all the people that reached out to her were Christians she said they had her into their homes they took her places they called her and checked up on her and she said she told me she said to one of them that was doing something kind for her She said, I said to them, why do you do this? Why do you do this to me? She told me that she had never known love like this. And it was from perfect strangers. Perfect strangers. She said that after six months, she got up one morning and she said to her roommate, I want to be a Christian. I want to love people like that. 
and she accepted Christ and is the most amazing young Christian woman. She's actually a single mother. I know her through Oasis. She's incredible. If we have the same worldview as Jesus, we wake up every morning loving God completely and loving others just like these people loved this young Chinese gal and led her to Christ. Okay, so let's finish up quickly. Let's read verses 38 through 44. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show and make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the Offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Chapter 12, which really finishes Jesus' public time in the temple courts, um, really gives us an incredible contrast here. The teachers of the law that have all the robes and the respect also have an expectation that they are going to be the ones that are served. They are takers, greedy takers. And the widow, who has nothing, she doesn't have a husband, she doesn't have any income, she doesn't have any resources, she's a giver. She's a sacrificial giver. You know, in the first century, the teachers of the law received no pay for their services, and so they were dependent on the hospitality of the devout Jews. But unfortunately, it had um, kind of disintegrated into a system with major abuses. And instead of serving God, they put on a great show so that everyone would be sure and serve them. In fact, they were doing something that... I think God thinks is pretty despicable. They were using their position of responsibility in God's kingdom to prey on widows and to gain financially. And fortunately, um, our Lord Jesus sees it and he addresses it and he gives us an assurance that it's going to be, uh, uh, they're going to be punished. Now, the poor widow that Jesus points out to his disciples, he says, come on guys, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Is of course the polar opposite. The religious leaders are, have physical prosperity and they have spiritual poverty. The widow has um, physical poverty, but she has spiritual prosperity. She knows God and she sacrifices for God because she trusts God. That is an awesome place to be in life. And she gives because she understands that her provision in life doesn't come from her bank account or from a husband or from uh, rich relatives. It comes from God himself. And I believe that Jesus points this out to the disciples right here, points out her willing, her sacrificial giving and her trust in God because Jesus knows that the disciples... um, It's going to be an important lesson in their lives sooner rather than later. He's probably between 48 and 72 hours of going to the cross. And the disciples' lives are going to change drastically. Jesus is no longer going to be physically in their midst to provide them 
with the worldview that they're going to need. Uh, just like us, the disciples in just a matter of a, a few short hours are going to be responsible for their own worldview, responsible for the lens that they look through. And the lens that they look through is going to be um, important in the kingdom and certainly important as they go on to found the New Testament church. I think the lens that we look through today, ladies, and the world we live in is no less important. Our worldview is going to be important in our personal lives. It's going to be important um, in the kingdom, and I think it's important in the church. So as we move towards um, Easter week, I would love for us to take a few moments to ask ourselves about our own worldview. Ask ourselves, how does it compare with Jesus' worldview. You may want to take some time later to really think about it and meditate on it and pray about it. But ask yourself, um, is your worldview one where God is all-powerful? Where you're not giving power to people or to circumstances in your life? Is your worldview one where God has your complete allegiance over everything else? Do you study the scriptures to understand the truth of who God is? Do you love God fully and completely? Do you give your time and money sacrificially, trusting that he um, will provide for you? This past weekend, the Hunger Games grossed $152.5 million with their humanistic worldview at the box office. I can't imagine how many people that must be that have been impacted by that worldview that Jesus' worldview, which is a perfect blueprint for us, we have the opportunity to impact people with that worldview also. And Jesus' worldview is priceless. Priceless. Pray with me. Father, you, um, your life for us is overwhelming. Your grace and your goodness in our lives is true and real. Father, I thank you for the scriptures, the truth that um, it speaks to us about who you are, how we can learn from you, how we can know your heart, and how we can just become women who have the same heart. Father, I thank you for these women. I pray that um, as we go forward into uh, the next 10 days, that our worship time with you would be so sweet and so precious and that our, uh, your blessing would be evident in our life. Thank you for these women, for the time that we have together in studying the scriptures. And thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.